Welcome to Mont Icons. In this episode, we speak to musician Mick Harvey. Mick, welcome. I wanted to start off, you told me the other day you were starting to put together your memoirs during lockdown. So I thought mm-hmm. that'd be a good place to start. Um, if you could talk about that. Yeah, well, I was planning to do it anyway, as I keep telling people if they ever ask me. And I've, I've, because of my, <clears throat> I came back from these shows we did in the UK in February and my diary was empty and my calendar was empty as well. And it was like uh, people have been asking me for a long time to, to you know, I should saying I should write my memoirs and some people even saying, oh, you know, I've got interested parties, I could, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So um, I was thinking, oh, well, I suppose inevitably I'll start doing that because there's nothing booked at all. And then, of course, all the lockdowns started happening. So I suppose every man and his dog is writing their memoirs by now. <laughs> so it seems like something everyone will be doing, but I'm, I'm not in any particular hurry with it. I mean, I can't, I've, I've thought about it for a number of years, I suppose, what I would, what I should do or what I would do. I don't know how it's turning out so far. I just started with a, an idea to tell the stories through just anecdotes of amusing things. I mean, I figure broadly it'd be seen as this, the biography of a kind of person in rock music, really, mm-hmm. inevitably. It's going to be pretty hard to disentangle myself from that connection. Mm-hmm. So um, then I just thought, well, people are coming to, will be coming to that, wanting it to be entertaining, you know, so I don't want to give some sober recounting of all the, you know, boring details of the daily, you know, and then we went in February, da, 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 you know, so I thought the more interesting way to, to for me too, when I read any rock memoirs or biographies, the thing that's really the best part about it is the kind of outrageous stories really. Yep. They're really the, you know, they're the best fun part of it. So I thought, well, I'll just tell it through, I'll, I'll try and tell it through the outrageous stories and see if you actually from that get a picture of what's happening. Can you give us a kind of example of an anecdote from, I remember you with, we were, to give some background, we were briefly talking about your early travels with the birthday party and how completely misunderstood, etc. it was. Um, oh, okay. Um, I can't remember which part would have been misunderstood, but, you know, there was quite a lot of misunderstandings going on. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there was a particular show, say, for instance, late 81 so i was just uh, the one you know just for an example of an anecdote it's about this particular gig we did which was the last show we did in europe before we came back for our second tour return tour of australia and it was this absolute disaster because nick was just i don't know what he was on um i probably a cocktail of things tracy was just completely drunk out of his mind and um the the show was just you know we were becoming really popular too we were just really kind of um you know things were really ramping up so it was really like a big show for us to that point you know there were like 1500 people there or something at the london school of economics hall or something and uh it was just a total disaster you know we weren't going to be back for three months to make amends either you know what that's like you just the last thing you did was terrible and that just stays with you for you know however long so, you know, I just tell, I just explain what happened during the show, which was just um, a variety of things like just, you know, playing some song with a long intro and waiting for Nick to start and just hearing this bang, bang 
every so often, eventually turning and look, what, what's that bang? And just Nick's there standing up on the barrier, just hitting this guy in the head with his microphone <laughs> <laughs> and not singing and, um, you know, stuff like that. And, again, you know, at some point just nothing's happening, wondering what's going on, looking around. Nick's trying to climb up the PA stack. Yeah. But, like, at great length but failing repeatedly to kind of get any purchase on Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of excruciating stuff really. But it, the whole evening played out and at some one point you just heard this big clatter, bang, bang, bang behind us and you looked, looked around Tracy just fallen flat on his back in the middle of a song just mm-hmm. and stopped playing and it was, you know, pretty disastrous. From... But it was very funny. You, the retelling's quite funny. Hopefully, quite funny because you know it's all in hindsight. It's I would, I would like music. to hear about the shows where that didn't happen because my assumption would be that <laughs> well, you know, that sobriety was a. Uh, well, I mean, the point is that uh, a lot of the shows were very successful for that reason as well. Hmm. So you know, it was a really borderline thing for it to spill over into being dysfunctional. So a lot of the time the kind of chemical balance between the different members was part of what made it really exciting and unpredictable and actually made it uh, quite explosive and dangerous and, yeah. So you kind of had to live with that. You lived with this knowledge that it could all go completely wrong or it would... So I, I And I was sober most of the time, almost all the time. So uh, I had to just live with that kind of, um, you know, get into the zone before each gig and think, well, wonder what's happening tonight (laughs) because it was – because half an hour before the show you didn't know what anybody might decide to do in the next half an hour. Mm -hmm. So it was still a a mystery what might be happening and it was, you know, it was pretty – some of the shows were quite dangerous too. The audience would get pretty wound up and Nick didn't – Diffuse them ever. He'd let it all happen. In fact, he'd probably wind them up more. And so it, be, it became quite explosive sometimes. And really not in a, a overtly violent way, in, in a kind of uh, undefinable way. It was, it was really like a, um, it's just something was, something would be happening that you couldn't explain, really. So that was. Really, they're kind of amazing. The things that'd be happening some night, and the whole thing would just take off. Some nights you couldn't describe what was going on. It was really exciting, and the audience would get that too. They really got into that, realizing if it descended into chaos and a bit more overt violence and stuff, then it'd kind of lose its mystery. So, um, how, how did you stay out of the fray and remain resilient? Not you know, getting wasted with your bandmates. Well, I just wasn't into anything, anything much, really, at that uh, at that time. I didn't wasn't drinking till uh, till I was about twenty three. I just didn't I just didn't really drink much. Maybe a gin and tonic occasionally, but you know, they weren't really available before shows in the birth birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't gin and tonic wasn't on the rider. And uh, what was on know, the rider? Oh. Probably just beer. It's probably just loads of beer. I think uh, uh, maybe there was some spirits. I can't. I really can't. In fact, there was probably whiskey. So I can't. Really can't remember because I wasn't drinking it anyway. So I would have mm. just been paying no attention. 
Um, and the drugs that were around, you know, I really didn't like heroin, so uh, wasn't there. Uh, maybe there was speed around sometimes. Cocaine was pretty much considered to be, you know, for for, uh, for uh, fairies or something. Or, you know, I don't know. It just wasn't – cocaine wasn't highly regarded in that scene at all. Uh, so it would have been some forms of amphetamines and stuff going around and heroin and I didn't really do either of them. So, How did you know you you didn't like it, like you wouldn't like it? Was it oh, something well, you'd you know, seen? I tried it a little bit in the late 70s. It was just like, yeah, I don't like that much. Yeah, and I, cool. then I really particularly didn't like what it was doing to people almost immediately too. It was mm. pretty clear that it wasn't kind of good what was happening. So I just stayed right out of it quite early. And how do you think that? I mean, I'm not averse in, to drugs. I don't mind yeah. people taking drugs, you yeah, know. Yeah. In principle, in practice, it can be quite bad. But in principle, I, know, I don't. I, I, I would. Um, I don't. I don't really like. Um, you know, losing that control. Although sometimes I do like losing that control that I have. So you know, <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not averse to drugs at all. Just, um, just the way they're used, really, and. Uh, so I, I'm not anti-drug. A lot of people think I must be anti-drugs or something. Mm. And I'm, I'm actually not. I think they probably should all be legalised and I, I'm just, you know, the, I have opinions about, as you guys probably do too, about the way they're controlled in the West and, you know, all this mm. sort of stuff. It's quite, kind of quite obvious what's going on really. It's all really corrupt and insane really. But um, how you actually uh, do that or... What my personal connection with uh, with them is from a from a uh, consumer point of view is uh, is quite difficult to explain. So it's not really like sorry coming... to waffle too much. No, but... no, it's. It, I thought maybe it would have had something to do with your upbringing, you know, in, a, in quite a religious. Oh household. no, that would more likely have driven me to drugs. I think. <laughs> so uh, no, it's just I'm kind of more. Um, I suppose my basic position, I, I do, I am kind of, I, I suppose I'm a Virgo or something. I like to be in control of stuff. So, I mean, I've never really tried any psychotropic stuff. I, I really think I would not like it. My, I just think I would hate it. So, you know, I've never tried LSD or anything like that because I just, I just know that I wouldn't like it. So, uh, as the one sober member of a band, like, is completely <laughs> notorious for, for other kinds for being, of activities. Yeah. Um, are any of the anecdotes you're writing about involve crossing borders? Because that, that I feel like with the kind of volatile personalities, that yeah, you're yeah, with, crossing... there are, there are, there's a few border incidents, yeah, which were pretty <laughs> hilarious, mm. actually. Some of them, obviously, some of them were pretty hilarious. Any, nobody ever got badly busted at a border, so okay. they were mostly pretty funny yeah. in the end. Anything you can share with us? So a little bit like you know a slapstick movie or something, <laughs> you know, just going through and just thinking, how do we get through that border without you know? Because traveling in the time that you did, when that, especially in Europe, which you did, yeah, borders, borders everywhere. Bit, yeah, there was borders everywhere. Yeah, and that's one of the only things they were really looking for. Mm. So they'd see this van full of likely-looking <laughs> characters coming through half looking really bedraggled and half, you know, half like they were on drugs anyway and, they yeah, they'd just search the van and and certain people had a, uh, a carryover kind of defiance from their teenage years, you know, just to authority, just like, yeah, we'll just, we'll, you know, we'll take them on. They were really like that I and mean, Nick and Tracy were like that. They were 
you know, if we get through the border successfully, you know, you'd know that Nick had something on him because he'd go, yeah, yeah, fucking dickheads. It's like he, you know, we beat you, you know, kind of thing. And then, then I'd be sitting there going, oh, great. We only... <laughs> then I'd realise that he had something in his bag or whatever, you know, so. So they kept that from you? Usually, unless we'd just left Amsterdam or something and it was pretty obvious there was going to be stuff in the van somewhere, yeah. Then I'd kind of know. But uh, mo- no, mostly I-, I just tried to remain oblivious. It was better to remain oblivious to that sort of stuff or I just would have been anxious or something, you know. There's no point. What was the primary difference um, between touring with the birthday party and later with the bad seats as far as you can kind of identify um, from this far back? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't uh, – it's – well, I mean the, the birthday party did have that <clears throat> that uh, really different aspect of the way the shows were really in this – would go into this zone that was uncontrollable Um Whereas the Bad Seeds began and really we began as a studio band in a way. We just, we began as a recording project in a way. So it took us a while to become a a decent live band. Um, and so by the time we did that, it was, uh, I think there was a very different expectation from the audience and uh, a different uh, attitude from Nick. And, you know, so it was, a, it was always a different thing anyway. And do you feel like you've carried any of that onto what you've done with Surge? Because I'd like to talk about that kind of um, experience of well, absorbing it's that. Well, funny, it's funny because the Surge thing. Can you just explain was, um, the Surge thing for anybody? Sorry. That oh, yeah. Know. Well, I, yeah, I, yeah. I did um, uh, I, in the mid-90s I did two albums of Serge Gainsbourg songs which I had translated into English and uh, probably the best way to describe it is the um, – and I think most musicians grapple with this kind of issue is the the kind of opposites of the, that kind of scale of one end is entertainment and the other is art and where, where you want to sit on that sort of semicircle, whatever mm-hmm. you call that, the... Um, scale. Scale. The scale, thank you, yes, <laughs> on that scale where you are. And you, one kind of has to, at some point you you have to, come to terms with an understanding about where you sit with entertainment, the entertainment factor of what you're doing. Are you going to be Michael Bublé or are you going to be like Throbbing Gristle or something? So um, and with the Gansborg shows it was like being thrust accidentally into being an entertainer. Okay. It's just like what's going, you know, I'd, I'd never thought about it and we started playing it live and it was like, oh, this is all just entertainment. It's, it's amazing to do it. And it was, so I found my own, I'm not a natural entertainer because it's not my thing. Don't even really like being the centre of attention or the singer. It's, it's something that um, I've accepted uh, as a, uh, whatever, it's my duty to do. I don't know, I'm, I, if someone's going to do it, I have to do it in that instance. So um, finding the, the level to which it was just about entertainment, his music was pretty funny. After all said and done, can you talk about what <laughs> what drew you to to do that project in the first place? Because yeah. um, I think it'd be nice to hear like your telling of of Serge or your recounting of who Serge was. But I suppose the thing that was really interesting for me about his work was just just hearing. I mean, I was familiar with some of his stuff, but uh, being in Berlin, there were you know French people and different. I mean, they they know his work a bit better in Germany than in other places, and um, or at the time they did. And 
it's more readily available. So there were people there who exposed me to uh, a lot more of his stuff and it was I realised that there was a lot more to it than, you know, than just a couple of songs or there was a large body of work. So that's kind of what interested me because there's this huge body of work of really unusual material, a lot of it, especially from the mid, like, mid-60s to, well, the mid-60s to the mid-70s really. It's really unusual a lot of what he's doing and people outside of France basically don't really know that stuff. They didn't know it. They didn't know this stuff at all. So he'd just been working away making this huge body of of music and people didn't know about it. I, I, so it was, you know, that was very attractive to try and understand that. So then obviously then I had to set about figuring out what on earth he was singing about. Everybody said, you know, well, his lyrics are fantastic. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try and find out. And if I think they are, you know, so I found the music really interesting. So that was really my starting point. I could kind of understand what some of the stuff was about. You get the feel of what they're about. And I, you know, I have a bit of French, so... Um, uh, but yeah, just just getting my teeth into what the what what he was doing with the lyrics and stuff, and the, the, I already had the musical basis. So I mean, it just was it just grew from there, really. The idea to do the project, and I asked people. I would ask people. I'd say to people, "Well, what do you think about this idea of you know?" I like I translate his songs into English, and everyone just went, "That's fantastic! Do it!" You know, everybody just said, "Do it!" So. Mm. Um, what do you think is the greatest misconception about Surge? Because even when I started talking to you about it recently, you corrected me on some some really simple oh, kind did of. Did I? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I might be wrong. It's just probably my opinion. But that's know, what but... I kind of want to get into right now is just to hear a little bit about who Surge was. And well, I mean, I think he's um he's he sort of developed these characters to. I mean, my take on it is probably you know I, I was never close to him. I don't know that much about him. So it's just kind of my take from what I've observed over time. But he was just a a jobbing songwriter who wanted to be successful and, you know, have a successful solo career and started out in the very end of the 50s and went through the 60s and stuff wasn't working for him very well. He was, and he was just a regular ambitious kind of songwriter guy. Um, in the mid-60s it feels to me like he almost gave up on his solo career and just started being a songwriter for young ingenues and, you know, doing this thing and doing the Eurovision and and he had loads of hits with that sort of stuff. So that was going really well for him. And then as the 60s developed in their natural prog- progression, because he was very much always just following the trends, you know, he would write his songs, he cared about his songs and then he didn't care at all how they were produced. He just let it be produced by the most expensive guys who were making the sound of the time. And if you look at his career, it's entirely like that from beginning to end, uh, from the jazz, early jazz stuff through then to the mid-60s kind of Brit pop stuff. Um, and then at, by the end of the 60s, it starts becoming freer and more experimental Everybody's doing their own thing and that's when he gets really interesting because he just starts doing Serge's own thing and that's pretty weird. That's when you get all the kind of Bonnie and Clyde and mm. the Je one en plus, all this sort of stuff. He just goes into a free zone where he's not constrained by um, 
what might be expected of a traditional songwriter or whatever and he, he just opens it and then he starts doing concept in the early 70s he starts doing concept albums because that's what people are doing he's just a complete trend follower but he cares about his basic songwriting so and that's what's at the core and that's why there's a great strength in his material and sometimes what he's actually presenting as a package is kind of quite cheesy because he doesn't care about the style. He just wants to sell it. After he's cared about writing it, he just wants to sell it. But he, you know, he was relentlessly frustrated in his um, uh, in his personal solo career, and you know, had then had some big success in the late with the, with the bridge, well, not with Bridget Bardot, with with Jane Birkin, with the Je, Je t'aime one en plus, and um, and a couple of other things you know, what happening and his solo, he became kind of a bit of a, an icon as a songwriter and all this sort of stuff. He stepped out of just being the Eurovision guy and all this other stuff and became, I suppose he'd been hanging around long enough and people realised there was a big amount of stuff there that he was presenting that was of value. So he became a bit of a, a national icon. Then he goes and does what's to do with the Melody Nelson album, thinks it's the greatest mm. thing he's ever recorded and it sells nothing. And I, I think up to that point, you know, he's kind of playing with his image, but he's actually just a, um, he's just a little ambitious guy with a kind of really bad, <laughs> with a really, really naughty sense of humour. And, uh, you know, he's pretty clever but he, and he's pretty naughty. And, um, but you can, you know, I, I don't know what I said to you the other day, debunking <laughs> myths about his, his personality, but he, he basically after, um, after Melody Nelson, I think he develops this Gunsbar character, which is his way of dealing with um, the fact that nobody's paying attention to him. So he, de- he de- devises this drunken bore who is going to offend everybody left, right and centre and he'll always be getting attention and it doesn't matter what it is because it's just attention about him. And it's it's bizarre. He kind of developed it out of frustration. I think. I think this Just, was the, yeah, kind of central to what I a was, lot of, yeah what I thought of him or how I perceived him was that well, character. If you if you want to yeah, and I think he I think that's an invented character, but I think he kind of became it as well. He was probably always a heavy drinker, and he always had a very naughty sense of humour. So he. Um, you know, he just kind of fused the two and just went too far with it. A little bit like a Les Patterson kind of character, really. He's kind of the French Les Patterson. <laughs> but he's not trying to be a comedian. He's actually actually being – well, he's invented this character, Guns Bar. It's like Guns Bar is like Les Patterson. But, you know, if you see the, the Jane Burke – Jane Birkin put together a movie of their – like a 40-minute film of their home movies. Have you seen that? No. Um, I think it's called something like – Souvenir de Serge or something. Um, I probably I probably got it actually, um, and it's just their home movies from the late sixties, like when she's in England at her brother Andrew's place, and um, and it's really beautiful. He's just he's just a very uh, you know he's clearly just quite a sensitive guy. He's just enjoying being in a really normal situation. You know, he's not sitting there swigging from a champagne bottle and. With his fly open or anything, you know? <laughs> so he's. It's a. It's really interesting. I think that film's really interesting. You should check it out. And um, oh, the one. Well, one thing I did observe, and I know that he got into trouble with France Gall and with a couple of people over time, and maybe there were issues there too with Charlotte 
about stuff that happened when she was younger or maybe just, you know, maybe that's because he was in his guns bar phase when she was young, which would have been a bit disturbing. But um, I've often pointed out that he's working with all these women and they all adore him. So he's obviously not a chauvinist pig guy or they're, they're you know, like people like Catherine Deneuve and and Anna Karina and, you know, these people, and they're not stupid. They're really strong women. If if the guy's just a chauvinist moron who's drunk all the time, then they won't want anything to do with him. So clearly he's not really operating like that on a personal level, you know. I just want to talk, uh, go back to your scale of um, entertainment and <laughs> artist. And, um, Sorry. Press yes, you. my scale of entertainment. Uh, well, you get on at the ground floor <laughs> and, and if just, you want to go to the top, you have to go up to the 10th floor and that's the rooftop and that's that's when you're Michael Bublé yeah, showing yeah. off on the rooftop. That's yeah. when you get to play at the Nova rooftop party. <laughs> Something but, um, like that. I just want to, uh, what do you, you, you were kind of talking about another scale here which is the musician and then the, the persona or something. Well, there's that as well. That becomes part of the entertainment thing as well, yeah. Mm. And people use that as that's, – that's about promoting yourself and that, that comes down to more a personal choice about um, uh, how egotistical you are and how much attention you want and stuff like that, you know, which, which plays into how much people usually buy into being an entertainer or not, but it's not always – it's not always tied together. Yeah, because I wonder like do you have to be yourself when you're on stage or can you just be this other person? Uh, well, me, me um, I guess sometimes and personally I just kind of do my own I, – I, I just feel like I'm just being me. I I'm not, don't really ever do a performance. I mean I, I will sort of say some silly things in between songs but um you know during the music i'm just not interested in anything else really i'm certainly not interested in you know doing star jumps and running around the stage like mm. rod stewart or something <laughs> it's really just you know and that to me was the antithesis of what we were doing in the late 70s anyway it was about going back to the basics and keeping it really uh really simple and honest about what what the music could be so, and I, I still just adhere to that. You know, I just that's my thing. I don't, I've never been really into mm. being a big show off. But now, when people look back at the birthday party, they'll probably think, "Wow, that was so performative and theatrical." Yeah, well, there's a, there. Well, you could you could see it that way. There's not a lot of um, video evidence, unfortunately. <laughs> of well, because um, I mean, Nick had a yeah. He was. Well, he's always had a thing. You know, there's a, a, part, a part of Nick which is very theatrical and showy and Roland and Tracy both, uh, you know, they both, um, you know, they played with that as well obviously in their different ways. Um, and I, can't, I can't speak to what, what they thought they were doing. <laughs> but, um, you know, Nick's very, um, uh, he likes being the centre of attention. He's always liked being the centre of attention and... Um, that was kind of clear when he was a teenager. So um, him being like that on stage, you know, it's funny, you know, I'm not like that personally but if I go and see a band and the the people on stage are sort of doing a bit of a performance and it's really exciting or entertaining and then I like it. I'm not anti that. It's just um, it's not my thing personally. So I kind of like it when I see other people doing it sometimes. So... Um, if it, if it seems relevant to the music they're doing, 
and connected with the music they're doing, then I can really enjoy it. Then that's just, you know, that's all just very subjective too about mm. how, how, you, how you process that and whether you think it's all right or not all right. So, uh, you know, when I've seen Nick performing back, back in the early days, if I saw him doing something and um, I wasn't in the band, then I really enjoyed what he was doing. Even though I knew he was being a show-off, I still liked the way he was being a show-off. So I don't know. That's um, mm. that's a tough one, yeah. There was definitely an aspect in the birthday party of him doing a performance and to to as a vehicle for his um, his ideas as well. But mostly, it's just about his lyrics. But a lot of the time, he was aware the lyrics were kind of being lost anyway. So it was a lot of the performative stuff was about being the centre of attention, yeah. I don't know. That's just what it is. I'm not, I can't really analyse that outside of um, his personality. So, I'm interested in, has there been any kind of long-term um, like uh, effect of being subject to such volatility in your early stage of performing? <laughs> like even when you're getting up and doing surge, like because uh, I, I, I would imagine there being... A feeling that even though I imagine it being quite um, a sedate environment mm-hmm. comparatively, that having been indoctrinated into live music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, I, I kind of um, well, I didn't use it. When we started out, it wasn't like that. So I experienced that before, you know, it was okay. quite, I, I never really had nerves about going on stage much. Um, and I think the kind of uh, the adage about you know i don't i don't know if there is an adage actually just that you know playing in a room in front of five people is more nerve-wracking than playing in a field in front of fifty thousand people and it really is actually it's much more uh confronting we're actually really aware of a personal observation whereas once you get out in front of it's just like oh well who cares you know it's out of my control now anyway Mm -hmm. and if the you know the mixing engineer falls asleep on the desk and his nose rides the thing. You know, that's all, you know, I can't do anything about it. I just have to play my instrument and nobody can see me anyway. <laughs> so it's, you know. Um, but I think the those years with the birthday party when it became really uh, edgy, it did stay with me for quite a while. Yeah, it took me a few years to realise that that, that wasn't going to happen anymore. It really did. T- I don't know how many, maybe a few years. I was. I would still be like the half hour before a show. I would be. I couldn't talk to anybody. Um, and gradually, I realised that it was okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to die in the next two hours. You know, it was okay. How edgy did it get? Oh well, I, I can't just describe that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, some sometimes it got very. Uh, I mean, that that was the 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 bad end of it you know would get people would be getting up on stage and with an iron bar and trying to attack nick and or you know think or or you, nick would just you i'd look around and nick would just be kicking someone in the head at the front of the stage and it was just like oh christ you know what am i doing up here so um and that, that was very upsetting you know because at that time you know these days i have loads of projects everybody seems to have loads of projects you know it's all dispersed around at that time it was that was our sole focus really um artistically i was very young and i was in early 20s so 
Um, it was the sole focus and I didn't sort of think about doing, you know, diversifying or something. It was like diversifying was watching the television, you know, and going to the movies or something or, you know, hanging, hanging around doing nothing or reading books. So that was the only focus really. So if it went wrong, it was would really just take you down. You'd be really down about it for until the next gig, you know. Who, who were you guys listening to around that time? Um, your contemporaries, I mean, or was it uh, all? Which um, time? In the late <laughs> 70s. Like I mean, the late 70s. Um, well, I think we were always listening to a lot of different stuff. So, you know, I remember being in a, in a place on the Esplanade with Roland and Genevieve in 79 and we were, I was, I remember we, there were Jacques Brel albums and, um, you know, it was all sorts of stuff there. It was like, you know, Sati was lying around and, and um, who's the other guy, the guy who did um, Flight of the Wild Goose, you know, Frankie Lane. I remember them loving this Best of Frankie Lane album. But, you know, that was additional to all the stuff like the pop group and Pear Ubu and all these and all the stuff that was coming through that was contemporary. And we was we were also by in '79 we were still catching up with the Stooges early albums, so because you couldn't get them until then, so uh, a lot of things just um, were coming in. Yeah, they, they they were all reissued. A lot of those early '70s American albums became available again because of you know the punk thing and the new wave thing, where they'd been completely you you couldn't get those records. So um, there was no way to hear them. I know that's hard to imagine, but um, <laughs> it's just, you know, if you imagine, okay, so the first Stooges album comes out in 1970 or whatever it is and uh, sells, you know, 50 copies in America, <laughs> maybe 10 get exported to Australia. I'm exaggerating the numbers here. Um, and somebody bought them in Australia. God knows where they are in someone's record collection. And then next few years go by and then I get to the age of like about, I don't know, how old am I by the time I'm interested in the early Stooges albums? They've been unavailable for six or seven years, even if you're a, a, an enthusiast. So nobody can hear them. There's no radio stations playing that stuff. Triple R didn't even start till 78 or something. It's just nothing, nothing there's no way to hear this stuff. Mm, yeah, I've heard similar things about people that claim they were always suicide fans but at their earlier shows there would only be like four or five oh, people. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Well, they were, they were well known in New York. No, people in New York knew them. Mm. I know the early suicide show, every, everybody knew suicide. But live they were always uh, an unusual prospect. They, it works much better on the recordings. It's kind of got the the intensities different somehow. But anyway, I, I digress. But just just um, how did we get to the Stooges? Oh, what we were listening to. So in '79, mm. you know, all the the old New York Dolls stuff stuff was coming out. All the stuff from the early '70s was available again because of um, what had been happening. So there was hu huge amount of stuff to be listening to. Was there anything happening in Melbourne that you guys felt kind of you were responding to? Because like my perception was that you guys came out of a bubble. And you well, stayed. No. You stayed in that bubble. No, like we it. didn't really. No, I think the, the '78 and '79 in Melbourne was really healthy. There was a lot of different sorts of bands around. It was actually a little bit like a kind of mid '70s New York scene in the diversity of of styles. I think people in Melbourne and some other parts of Australia saw the whole new wave thing as as a 
um, it brought people together in that the, 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 it was all these different bands who felt like they were working outside the mainstream but didn't have a focus and were into we, lots of the bands were all into very similar things. They'd been, you know, listening to the same stuff for years like the Velvet Underground and the whatever and all those, all that list of stuff that everybody's been listening to that wasn't reflected in the mainstream music stuff like Steely Dan or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, not that they were that, you know, who was the mainstream then? I don't even know what they were, all, all those all those bands <laughs> that were around in the mid-70s. Um, apart from the glam stuff, of course, because that was all kind of available, you know, T-Rex and Bowie stuff was all readily available. But there was an awful lot of stuff that was pretty much underground, which... Um, and so the the new wave thing kind of brought all those that those same sort of people who were trying to do stuff out of the when we all met each other. So um, a lot of the bands from seventy eight and seventy nine, you know, you wouldn't they've you know disappeared. You wouldn't if I said their names, you wouldn't know them. You know, they've been and gone, so they didn't record or they, they were. It was a really healthy. Uh, it was much harder to record back in those days too. So it was a really healthy scene in Melbourne. Fantastic, actually. It was really kind of exciting, and there were lots of things going on, and every band was really different, and mostly we didn't like each other very much, <laughs> but we all knew that we were, um, you know, what kind of unified us was that we all knew we were working outside of that system, and um, so we had a really, you know, we, we I, I've always felt like those years we, we didn't really know what we were trying to do with the boys next door. It was almost like a kind of apprenticeship. For us, we were really young and I was like 18 when we were playing around Melbourne and it was like we were really trying to work out what we wanted to be playing. We didn't have any particular vision. We'd just been playing early Alice Cooper and Bowie and Lou Reed stuff as a school band and found ourselves sounding kind of in the ballpark of what was going on, you know, And, and, and listened to a lot of that. Uh, that mid-70s New York stuff and everything when it all became available so and it kind of incorporated that. But we were just, you know what it's like when you're in your late teens. Most people are just really heavily influenced by what they're into. It's really hard to find your own voice at that age, I think, a lot of the time. Most people. Well, one band that I found quite interesting to hear that was a huge influence on early Australian punk was Alex Harvey's band. Mm. Um, the sensational Alex Harvey band. A, a yeah. band that not a lot of people uh, talk about today. No, they don't. Yeah, he was a he was a big influence on lots of people. So, uh, as I probably listed, you know, Bon Scott, um, uh, Jimmy Barnes, for better or worse, <laughs> wish he'd just kept channeling him, um, and Greg McCainch, who was the obviously the songwriter in Skyhawks, and then obviously Nick, who was, uh, you know, he was, he was considered Alex Harvey was the they just called him the King of Glasgow in the mid seventies because. They were very. They were really popular in the UK, and they were from Glasgow, so they were like Glasgow's number one band or something, you know. So uh, they they were, you know, they're a really un, really strange group. Yeah, and if you take those band. four characters and have a look at the trajectory of what they've done, mm. that influence is it's, monumental. It's really huge. It's a, monumental yeah, it's influence. a huge influence. I mean, a lot of uh, you know, Bon Scott's sense of humour and his cheekiness and stuff is really connected with the way Alex Harvey performed and wrote, even though he's not as – he's funny. You know, he's got his own style of comedy inside the dumb rock song, but um, he's – which is what's brilliant about early ACDC, obviously, if there's anything that's brilliant about it, apart from the shaker. 
the shaker and the the sense of humor and the lyrics is really what you know, it's what, just what did you draw from from alex harvey's band um well he was just he was um it's hard to explain i think nick was into it more i think he really loved the way he delivered his his vocals which are just done in that really thick scott scott accent um which is pretty amazing to listen to and very weird um and he liked the content of the lyrics too i mean the actual you know nick was very i i I really enjoyed some of those aspects as well you know the music's a bit varied sometimes the music's really great sometimes it's a bit 70s rock and um or you know in that area but uh i'd have to look through i mean some of the songs i still find so funny you know, I think the best things that are, you can see online are probably um, the old grey whistle test things, which is them doing next, <laughs> and it's it's really out there, and that's that's kind of what I loved about him. It was just going into a zone that was very uncomfortable as a listener and a viewer, and I kind of really enjoyed that most of the time. That's a pretty good segue to work towards something I really wanted to talk to you about, which was the Ghost of the Civil Dead. Uh, yeah, did it with Nick and Blixer, yeah. Yeah, can you talk about how that came together? It's it's definitely a story I haven't heard. Um, that film's and it's, definitely disappeared. Oh, has it? Oh, okay. The soundtrack's um, just a, such an important part of that well, whole Well, yeah, experience. I mean, we just, I, mean, we just uh, I suppose doing it as three people, we had to find a concept to um, unify what we were going to try and do. So I think we, uh, we, we watched, it was kind of a film being made by first-time filmmakers and they just assigned each other different major tasks, even though any of them could have swapped roles with the other one and they were all kind of in each other's pockets really with what they were doing. Um, so when we saw the rough cut, I think we just thought, oh, it's a bit hard to understand what's going on <laughs> a lot of the time. So we decided we should make the soundscapes around which part of the prison you're in to try and help people understand what the hell's going on just on a, on a basic uh, storyline level. Um, and, of course, uh, we did that and it actually did assist that problem. But uh, then they just decided to turn off the music a couple of times so then then it didn't work anymore but anyway uh, broadly speaking you know so we found we just tried to we worked through finding a solution for how to to do that and i suppose having having that basic principle really helped there being three people there who might have a completely different concept about how the music should be because you know we could have all just done it individually i guess but uh so collaborating on something like that is um, well, it worked. I mean, we you know it worked. It, it might be problematic, but it happened to work. But the film itself is is uh, making a very deep statement about um, uh, society and control and um, the nature of power and punishment and stuff like that. It's a pretty pretty strong statement they're making, and uh, that's a, and a really a large part of that is Evan, the producer. Who would have been also involved in the script and that's his thing he's really big on that sort of stuff that's his bag if you like i never use that term anyway, there you go i just did i did, couldn't find other words to explain it and he he has sadly not really done very much since and um i really wish he had because he would have made some great films i think that were really like asking tough questions and 
you know, presenting uncomfortable truths or maybe truths or whatever they are, you know, for people to to process. And um, unfortunately, he's kind of not really done a lot. As an outsider to to all of this music making business, um, how, do you do you, do you sit down with Blixer and Nick and discuss? Well, not your anymore. concept. <laughs> well, like back then, like uh, when you when you're well, working on a soundtrack, well, on that like we'd this, had to. Yeah. yeah, there was a necessity to do that because we had to all be on the same page and kind of find a way to work through the process and say, okay, we're going to do this and do that, and we discussed how the film was and what problems it might have had and what we could do about that and and what we felt about the types of atmospheres it would need, which were going to be pretty simple. Hmm. You know, they weren't complex. Um, and with our limited uh, uh, musicianship abilities into areas that we maybe had, you know, didn't none of us played the instruments that we were trying to present. So... Um, we had to kind of work through that too, you know, me trying to play cello and stuff like that, which is was not, you know, the greatest idea in the world. But, uh, you know, things like that. So I think Blixer plays the tin whistle and stuff like that. So it was all – we weren't playing our regular instruments either. So um, we were in this kind of weird um, zone of discomfort as well, which was probably helpful to the whole – feeling of discomfort that we managed to produce so it's kind of all a bit un feels a bit un improper like it's not really being even the music's being done a bit improperly like it's not quite slick or okay and i I think that really helped probably yeah i I was telling you mum would about how that film for me was a rite of passage almost as a child among people I knew. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, they would, you'd, everyone would ask you if you'd, if you'd seen it yet when you're about 16, 17. Um, and it, it was kind of the, the transition from an Australian boy to an Australian man, like, mm-hmm. must kind of involve that, that process for, 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 the, for my age group and for the kind of people I was hanging out with at the time, um, enduring that discomfort and 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 in, insanity do you remember much about the how the film was described to you before you'd seen it and how that kind of came um, to oh look uh no i don't because um because they were all sending me drafts of the script ages before we started working on it and then you know and then another one it's like oh another draft of the script so you know i, I know i can't remember it was so at it um it wasn't it started a bit differently. It was probably a bit more character driven a lot of the time earlier on. Like there were just internal stories in the prison, and I think the that concept around the the control, you know, the societal control thing, um, probably became a bit stronger in the actual film than it was described in the script, which is you know inevitable. They were using the imagery and so forth and. But there were a lot of discussions, uh, particularly from Evan, around these kind of government bodies and how, you know, um, uh, controlling and et cetera they were, you know, how everything in out there is actually being controlled and everybody's being everybody is being controlled and that was kind of something that obsessed him a bit. He was, you know, getting me to look at all this weird literature and stuff like that, which was kind of great, but it was like, and it comes across in the film quite strongly. I'm not sure that that was really in the scripts 
so much because a lot of that a lot of that is visual in the film that's just inferred and you know you need to understand that you need to interpret that yourself i think mm. ask this question to most of our guests in in, in a variety of different ways but i want to ask you okay. what, what's the point of making music i really i don't know it's just something that happens um i mean i think music uh has the potential to speak to people and uh, express things that just aren't can't be done in any other form. So it's pretty useful in that way. That's kind of nice to have that uh, to be connected with that to be able to to make something that it just sort of transcends explanation. I like that that it can do that. So, and that's always something to aspire to, that you just create something that's unique and kind of, you can't really describe what it is. Sounds like God. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Litmus Media.